I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. It is rather a grey day out here in the Norfolk countryside towards the end of March 2021. My best dog friend, Rosie, a Whippet Poodle Cross, black in colour, though increasingly grey, like myself, is up ahead. She is bounding around in search of wildlife that she can... Uh, play with in a fun, carefree way slash bully. I don't like to use that word, but you know, you've got to see it from the rabbit's point of view. That's what I'm saying. How are you doing, podcats? Not too bad, I hope. Sorry about not putting out an episode last weekend. As I said at the end of the last podcast, I've been taking a bit of time to begin getting my ducks in a row for this auction that I want to do in aid of MSF. I'll say a little bit more about that at the end of this week's podcast. But as far as today's intro goes, I've got a lot to pack in. And I should warn you that I will be saying the word podcast a lot, almost as much as they say cheers in the new series of Line of Duty. Takes too long to say covert human intelligence source, you see. So the police have to say chiz. They used to just say source, but that didn't sound enough like jizz. So now they have to use the acronym chiz. Oh, windy. So anyway, podcasts. Before I tell you about my guest this week, I wanted to mention another podcast on which I recently appeared, which I think you will enjoy. It is the Excellent Tape Notes podcast, hosted by XFM DJ John Kennedy in which he talks to artists and producers about the creative process. Previous guests have included Metronomy, Leanne Le Havas, Caribou, Haim and Paul Weller. So it was only a matter of time before they got round to the artist A. Buckles. And I talked about some of the timeless music I've made over the years and played a few extremely rare bits of audio of things I made when I was at art school and I engaged in appropriately in-depth analysis of classic songs like Party Pom Pom, The Mind of a Pirate, The Counting Song and era-defining jingles including Text the Nation, Have You Seen My Phone Charger and Like and Subscribe. Where is the jingle category at the Grammys? Anyway, that is me on the Tape Notes podcast, available now, link in the description. But let me tell you a bit about today's guest for this podcast, number 154, the English comedian, actor, writer, and TV presenter, Tom Allen. Tom Fax. Tom, currently aged 37, grew up in the South London suburb of Bromley. 
David Bowie's old stomping ground. Stamping ground? Stomping ground. Stomping ground. And by the end of the 90s, Tom was on the path to becoming an actor. He got into the prestigious National Youth Theatre. But by 2005, at the age of 22, Tom had shifted his focus to stand-up comedy, where he quickly made his mark and won like a bunch of newcomer awards and shit. Over the next decade, he began making appearances on TV panel shows in the UK, as well as landing the odd acting role too. And by 2016, Tom was supporting stand-up comedian Sarah Millican on a tour that took him around the UK, as well as Australia and New Zealand. He's also toured with other giants of the current UK comedy scene, Josh Widdicombe, Ramesh Ranganathan and Michael McIntyre. In the last... All right. In the last few years, Tom has become a familiar presence on British TV, instantly recognisable. He's got a good look, a strong look. The natty suits, the shaved head, the cocked eyebrow, the acerbic wit. He's also no stranger to the world of podcasting, having co-hosted the Like-Minded Friends podcast with comedian Susie Ruffle since 2015. And I believe he may even have appeared as a guest on some other podcasts apart from this one, too. I find that hard to believe. Comedians just going around being on a load of podcasts? Poopycock. That's the expression, isn't it? My conversation with Tom was recorded remotely back in January of this year, 2021, with me in my nutty room in Norfolk and Tom in the Bromley home where he still lives with his parents. We were speaking just over a week after the attack on the US Capitol and as the post-Christmas wave of COVID infections was steadily intensifying in the UK. We didn't talk about any of that. I just thought you'd enjoy a snapshot of January. Remember January? Crazy times. Some of the things we did talk about, however, included Tom's experience of visiting Japan, being a youngster and getting into old people's music, dealing with self-loathing, Tom's adolescent yearning to be a butler, detailed in his very enjoyable book, No Shame, published earlier this year. And those butler dreams began, as you will hear, after Tom saw Remains of the Day as a young man providing a neat but coincidental callback to some of the things I talked about with Kazuo Ishiguro on the last podcast. Towards the end of my conversation with Tom, we also spoke about science fiction and camp. And the super nerds amongst you may notice that at one point, when talking about the 1980 version of Flash Gordon, I mistakenly refer to Dale being drugged by Clytus rather than Ming, I'm sorry, please don't write in. Everything else in this podcast, I get absolutely right. Back at the end, for a few more details about my exciting auction, but right now, with Tom Allen. Here we go.
Hey, Tom. Hello, Adam. Thank you for this. 20 minutes later, after some technical fiddling, I'm not going to do what Louis Theroux does on his dreadful podcast <laughs> and spend the first minute or so doing a little montage of technical setupery. Good. But suffice to say, Tom and myself have spent the last 20 minutes setting up. But I really appreciate your patience and conscientious attitude towards the whole technical aspect of this conversation please don't apologize i feel like there's just always another wire there's another setting to check absolutely and if that's not how the old saying goes yeah i think that is how the saying goes i've got a poster and it says there's always another wire another setting to check (laughs) it's written in lovely serif oh that's a nice thing to have yeah i have it embroidered (laughs) my great great grandmother did it during the first world war you should have it as a tattoo that would be a good tattoo oh yeah i was thinking about getting a tattoo maybe an anchor which would suggest I maybe spent a period of time in the Navy. Where would you get it? On my arm, I think. On my, I say bicep, but that feels a bit of exaggeration. On my upper arm, I think is a better description. <laughs> At the moment, you are free of tattoos. Yeah, tattoo free, yeah. Because, you know, in Japan, you can't have tattoos. People don't like tattoos in Japan. And I went there once and I would like to go back again. Is that true? Well, you can have them, but I think it's a suggestion that you might be part of the... Um, Yakuza. Yakuza, yeah. So you can't go into any of the onsen which are the sort of spas. Oh, because people are like, oh. I didn't realise that. Yeah. I remember seeing like no tattoos was one of the signs. Very interesting. I found the whole place very intriguing. When were you there? Oh, like eight years ago. But also friends of mine love to make fun of the fact that I will crowbar into any conversation that I've been to Japan as a sort of status thing. Uh, you know, I went for two weeks, eight years ago. I didn't live there five years ago. I just went over and I went on my own. And it was actually, it was very lonely. It was very isolated because... Everything is very different to here. So it's quite difficult to sort of make new friends. It was kind of quite a lonely experience. So I'd like to go back and have a bit more of a fun experience, I think. I'm interested to know what you were imagining from your solo holiday. What did you think was going to happen and how was it different? That's a good question because I think a lot of the time I live in this fantasy that I'm going to go there and I'm going to have this revelation. I'm going to be so sort of enriched by everything. I'm so stimulated by all the new experiences I'm going to have that I'm going to be in this kind of nirvana of exaltation. And in truth, I got there. I was very tired. It was far too warm. I'd booked the wrong sort of accommodation. I was basically staying. It wasn't even a fun capsule hotel. It was a cupboard. It was literally a cupboard (laughs) in a youth hostel. Yeah. Because I thought that would be the way to, you know, you've got to do it. Keep it real. Keep it real. You've got to have real experiences and this will be a fun way to meet people. But it was it was really stressful and then you can't sort of unpack anything. You're living out of a suitcase and there's no room and you're sleeping in a tiny cupboard and you're jet lagged and that it was terrible stuff. <laughs> there were all sorts of moments where I was like, what am I doing here? And I'd write in my diary and then a diary can quickly spiral into misery if you're not writing it for any purpose because you just go, well, I just found myself going, well, I, I can't believe I came here on my own and then I went there and I, I couldn't understand the menu again so I had something I didn't like for lunch again. This is a terrible trip. Maybe I'll just try and change my flight. I just want to go home. And then I wouldn't go home. I'd stay there for a bit longer. And then resent myself for that. I mean, it's terrible. But I make out to my friends that it was wonderful. Yeah. Because I actually, talking about Japan is one of the things in my locker as well. I've got a little jukebox of subjects (laughs) that I talk about that roll round and round on this podcast. And I have mentioned my time in Japan a number of times. But it is such an impressive place. It really does stay with you. And just the atmosphere there is so genuinely different. Like throughout Europe and America, the experiences are getting more and more homogenous in a lot of ways. Same sort of shops, you know, the language, cultural reference points are becoming more and more similar. 
in a lot of ways. Yeah, for sure. But in Japan, it's like, forget about it. It's totally yeah. different. Um, sorry, I'm out of practice. I haven't done one of these for a few weeks. I've been in lockdown three on my own. Well, I say on my own, with my family. <laughs> and I feel as if I'm going a little bit crazy. How are you doing with it? Um, yes, sort of similar. And I feel like it's been difficult, hasn't it, the last couple of weeks because it's January and that's a difficult month anyway. That's right. It's the bleakest of months. And it's been a particularly cold one. We had snow up here in Norfolk. Did you? You had flooding. You had snow. Is there no extreme weather you will not take? Sandstorms? Have you ever had a sandstorm? <laughs> no, even though it's very sandy around here, so far the topsoil has remained intact and we have not had a sandstorm or a plague of locusts okay but yeah you're right it's been really bleak and grim and then of course with the events of the american protests and oh, yeah. covid news in general it has just felt yes very different to the lockdowns last year in 2020 don't you think yeah that's true yeah what <laughs> i love how we're able to compare like what was your favorite lockdown <laughs> I like to think there was a sort of, oh, I'll make the best of this time. This will be a really productive time in the 2020 March, April one. Yeah. However, looking back, a friend of mine reminded me, I was actually very anxious and very miserable and was worried about everything all the time. But I'm just looking back going, oh, discovered Todd Rundgren. Wow, it was such an amazing time and the birds were singing and the sun was out. We sat in the garden all the time. Like, no, it was very stressful. <laughs> so I think there's that human capacity to... Forget all the bad times when we move on from something. Yeah, because it was sunny and you had Todd Rundgren. You can't just drop Todd Rundgren in and expect me not to pick up on that. I thought you'd like him. What are you listening to? Wizard and a True Star. Yeah, I, th yeah, I think that was the album Yeah, that I got into. Can when we still I be friends? Saw the light. Is that, that's on there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe something, anything. Anyway, yeah, he's an interesting guy, isn't it? I feel bad because I feel like now the way we discover music through, say, Spotify or, or indeed iTunes is that you don't see the album. Whereas I used to remember getting an album and I would listen to the album. Right. I go, oh, I like that track. I don't, and I'd let it play in the background. I go, oh, is that still playing? Oh, I quite like this song. And then get into the whole album. There'd be like one key track that would take me into the album yes i know that's a bit weird now isn't it what kind of numbers is todd rundgren racking up in his top five um what songs on spotify like how many listens has he got for oh his top i song, don't I know actually probably not that many i don't think that many people know about him which i like because it's the same with for example rufus wainwright yeah i remember getting very into rufus wainwright in the mid-2000s and I was like, he's so cool. I love him. And then everybody got into him and was like, oh, my God, I went to see him at the Eden Project. You know the types. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, there, everybody's into him now. Oh, well, it's not so special to me now. It's not so special. I still do love him. Uh, Todd Rundgren. I Saw the Light is his top track on Spotify. 33 million listens and counting nearly 34. I'm out. But the other day it's I was popular. talking to my son. I had a wonderful moment with my son the other day a great oh. little shining moment in lockdown mm -hmm. and we were painting a wall in his room where the paint is all flaking off and he kept on saying like dad can we do something about it? i was like yeah let's sort this out son we are gonna sort this wall out it's gonna be a father-son diy afternoon. <laughs> and lovely. while we were doing our diy i said stick some music on and so he said have you heard this? And he put on a track by Radiohead called How to Disappear Completely. Oh. Which is a beautiful song. And it has these unsettling, strange, almost atonal strings that open the track at the beginning, creating this weird, unsettling mood. And I said, ah, you know where they nicked that from? And they have admitted themselves. Johnny Greenwood said on a documentary that they stole it almost wholesale from Scott Walker. Really? Yeah. It's a track of Scott Walker's called... 
it's raining today. And it's sort of mid-period Scott when he's still crooning, but things are going a little bit weird. Do you know Scott Walker? A little bit, yeah. Not Actually, I think I might put him on my list. I'm going to write him down. But I said to Natty, like, have you heard of Scott Walker? And, and he said no. And so I stuck on It's Raining Today, and he was like, oh, wow, yeah, that is the same idea. Ah. And then we went on a Scott Walker jag, and I ended up playing him a track called The Electrician from a kind of comeback album that the Walker Brothers did, which is really extraordinary, very odd. Oh half kind of avant-garde, experimental, spooky, almost horror film music. It's about a torturer. Oh. And then there's periods where it's very lush and orchestrated and beautifully melodic. And he listened to this and he was like, oh, my God, that is everything I love about music in one song. Oh, wow. It was so fun just to have that thrill of seeing someone experiencing an amazing piece of music like that. But I brought it up because Scott Walker on Spotify. Let me just check that I'm not talking bullshit. Top track from Scott Walker, The Old Man's Back Again from Scott Four, which is maybe his best album. That's only got just over 7 million listens. Not as popular. And you compare that to, you know, obviously chart artists, they're up in the high billions. Yeah. And you just think, wow. Yeah. If you take Spotify as some indication of what younger generations are listening to, they barely know about Scott Walker. It just seems so strange. Yeah, I feel like I don't listen to new music actually very much. I used to listen to, I used to get quite excited about, oh, there's a new band out. Yeah. I used to listen to Absolute Radio actually quite a lot. That was because it was before, when it was just Radio 2 or Radio 1. And I'd listened to Radio 2 as a teenager because I was very unusual. And I used to like Desmond Carrington and the David Jacobs collection because as a child I was old. <laughs> because it was before like Radio 6 existed. So Virgin Radio as it was before it was Absolute used to play like new bands quite a lot and I used to get really into it. But I don't do that anymore and I sort of feel sad about that. I don't know why. Who were you listening to on those old Radio 2 shows then? So the David Jacobs collection which would be at 11pm Moira Stewart now does that time slot. And did they get you into any artists, though? Did you discover any music through those programmes? I think, well, it got me into sort of musicals, I think, quite a lot. And it got me into listening to Victor Moan. Crooners and things like that. Yeah, sort of crooners and kind of Peggy Lee, I suppose. It's that sort of, it's not as kind of saccharine as some of the 50s music, but I suppose it's sort of the 60s and it's got more of a folk like when you think of the folks who live on the hill, it's very folky, really, isn't it? It's very kind of grounded in that modality of kind of winsome hills and people living on hills. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of always like that sadness. I always like sort of, I've always liked sad music, actually. Yeah. Like, I do like a bit of folk music as well. And I'm noticing there's a big trend for sea shanties at the moment, which I quite like a sea shanty. You know, and I like classical music that was always a bit sad and sort of always enjoyed a bit of Renaissance choral music as well. Or maybe on Radio 3. I listened to Radio 3 as a teenager. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that is weird. I mean, were you being exposed to this stuff by your parents or were you discovering it yourself? Um, I've never been very good at going to sleep. And so my dad said, why don't you listen to Radio 4? They have this thing called Book at Bedtime at 10.45. And I would listen to that. And then I wouldn't be able to sit. And I'd end up listening to lots of things on Radio 4 all the way through to the shipping forecast, which I loved. And followed by, well, Sailing By, the shipping forecast introductory music, which I still enjoy. Love it. Uh, the shipping forecast and followed by the national anthem, <laughs> <laughs> which just seems so, so camp. Everything about it is so camp. And friends of mine are Radio 4 announcers. And it's been pointed out to me that nobody who needs the shipping forecast gets it from listening to it at Radio 4 at like 10 to 1 in the morning. Like if you're a fisherman... 
you're not tuning your FM dial. Like you just get it on your phone. <laughs> you just get the shipping forecast. Like you get any news on your phone. Right. But yet Radio 4, there would be such an outcry if Radio 4 suddenly stopped covering what, you know, Trafalgar's gale warnings were. They have to keep it, which is lovely. And I like it. And I like the sense that it kind of reminds us a bit of the natural world and all of that. But yeah, so I listened to that. And then I was got a bit bored of Radio 4. And I was like, what do I want now? I want something more. And so I get into Radio 3 and Late Junction, which I still think is one of the best bits of radio yes that's very notoriously fantastic and eclectic eclectic is what i think that's especially bbc radio stations i think are so good at they aggregate kind of different forms and different things and so you go well i like that thing so i listen to it for that and then they go well have you thought about actually how that influenced theolonius monk and oh you, you might like that and you go oh i didn't think about how gregorian chant influenced jazz and then you go oh that's interesting and you feel very smug about yourself and then you fall asleep so you are quite open-minded then as a young man, right? Not to suggest that people who just go along with the top 40 are not open-minded. I mean, I was definitely a top 40 guy. I was a Radio 1 okay. guy. Okay. But I was less adventurous. I was still at the point where I found different music a little bit weird. And it was a few years before my mind opened up a bit more and I explored some of the late night shows on Radio 1 or whatever. And But I wouldn't have been open-minded enough to go, well, why don't I change the dial completely and listen to a totally different set of music? But did you think of yourself as quite adventurous? For me, the hallmark of my youth was that I knew I was different. I felt different. And I wanted to be different. I wanted to be a, away from everybody else. Not just be geographically away. I wanted to be away in terms of eras. I wanted to live in a fantastical world that I'd created that was just mine and I and nobody could sort of trample over, which sounds like the beginning of a thriller, doesn't it? But why was he so strange? Well, that's the next question. When do you remember being aware of that? And was it as a response to something directly or was it just always the way you felt? I remember I'm always feeling different. I always spoke differently. So I've got this posh voice, which isn't the same as my parents and nor is it the same as people around me. They've got London accents. So I always knew I was different and I felt very different at school. I always lay it at the feet of like, oh, it's because I'm gay. And maybe that is a big part of it because I somehow knew that I wasn't relating to the, the, the sort of relationships I saw around me. But at the same time, I, don't, I think I was just an outsider, just enjoyed being an eccentric. And so everybody else seemed to like, say, garage music, the UK garage scene was very much on vogue, a la mode, when I was a teenager. And so... I knew I couldn't, I wasn't into that. And so I just sort of was like, well, I'm going to be completely different to that. And I'm going to go over there and find my own little corner of the world to exist in. And I'll pretend that I'm a 75 year old gay man with probably an antiques shop living in Hampshire. And I'll live out that life. And, and that suited me much more because I, yeah, I just, I couldn't relate to a lot of the sort of garage scene and like pirate radio and and like raves and parties that were advertised on roundabouts, I was far too frightened of, actually. I was just frightened of other kids, basically. And I was frightened of older teenagers who'd be like, why are you so weird and would beat me up? Yeah. The 90s, when I grew up, wasn't a very flamboyant time at all. I, often people get annoyed with me for saying this, but it was a very dour sort of like, keep your head down, don't dress up, don't stick out, don't be different. Why are you like that? What are you doing? Oh my God, why are you doing that? It was very, I, I found it anyway, that was my experience. And I suppose that might be quite specific perhaps to where I, grew up like the suburbs of London, I think aren't traditionally very like, oh my goodness, you're incredible. <laughs> like, it's very much like, what? Why are you like that? Why? Why? 
I don't like that. What? And that was very much the experience I had at school. And it was always like, ah, my cousins, my cousins are going to come down and beat you up. It was very sort of bubbling undercurrent of violence. Yeah. Well, you had that early experience of actually being beaten up by someone who didn't like the fact that you were looking at them in the wrong way or just decided that you were looking at them and they were like, what are you looking at? And it ended up, you talk about it in your book, which I've really enjoyed, by the way. I listened to the audio book. I thought it was great. And I want to talk to you about a lot of bits and pieces in there. But... You describe very well a time. How old would you have been when you got beaten up at school? I think I was about 12. I think I was like year 12. Eight. And it is, it's shocking because you're quite matter of fact when you begin to describe it. And initially, you know, it sounds like the kind of thing that unfortunately happens on a regular basis at schools. Kids are regularly and routinely mean to each other. And it's sort of, you know, it's kind of what you expect. And some people get picked on more than others and Mm. it goes around. But then it's so sort of insistent the way it develops and the guy just doesn't give up and he gives you a really good kicking in the end, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's really shocking and upsetting and you realize you get a sense of how those experiences which you sort of take for granted when you're little because you don't know how the world works. It's like, oh, this is happening now. But actually, afterwards, gradually, as you get older, it stays with you and you look back on it and you think, fucking hell, that was horrible. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people do have experiences like that, sadly, which is why I wanted to write about it in a way. And, and also, to be honest, I hadn't thought about it until I got into my 20s and I was speaking to a therapist and they were like, oh, so you were the victim of a, a homophobic attack. And I was like, oh, no, that's something that happens to other people. I was just kicked. And then you go, oh, no, that is, you know, that's what it is. And I think... I had to, I couldn't talk about it because if I talked about it, people would go, well, why did he pick on you? And it was like, because he said I was gay. Well, are you gay? But there was no way I could talk about that at all. And that's kind of hard to convey, I think, to some people. And at the same time, it's sort of that sense of, I wasn't marching around organising a gay pride march. I was literally just stood in the queue. And I I wasn't like ogling this guy. I just glanced at him. And he just picked up. And I think, you know, he sort of probably saw a, a weakness in the fact that I was an outsider and knew that I was somebody that would be a a good person to pick on, I suppose. You weren't at that point dressed in full Victorian costume. <laughs> no, not at that point. I was just in school uniform, just being really, and actually trying to blend in, which was sort of what was so frustrating about it. And I think it gave me a message, which I'd already experienced when I'd, actually at primary school as much as at secondary school, a sense of like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't, I'm, you know, you feel so shit about yourself that you kind of go I'm not entitled to be alive basically is how you feel because you have to apologize for yourself so much and that sort of sense of constantly feeling like you're apologizing for yourself and thinking you're doing your best to blend in and not cause a fuss and please don't look and then to have that experience I think it perhaps on some level made me go well if that's going to happen like what am I going to do just sort of half hide and still get picked on I may as well in some way go full throttle and be very different but even in saying that it sort of suggests that it was kind of simplistic I I didn't then after that go like well to hell with it and came in dressed in a wig yes in a film you would go home and you (laughs) would have a tearful moment of galvanizing yourself and thinking screw them I'm going to express myself and they're just going to have to deal with it and then the next day you come into school wearing I don't know whatever Uh, yeah yeah I'd have some sort of like experience with like watching Dolly Parton on the television that would inspire me and she would perhaps reach out of the television and speak directly to me in a magical moment you know and I suppose I'd experienced so many stories that were so like that and I felt like well if I don't represent that actually it wasn't like that it didn't teach me anything it just made me go deeper into my shell but in a sort of more kind of convoluted way and like sure 
like not long after that, I did School Cabaret, where I decided to do a Julie Waters monologue from Alan Bennett's Talking Heads. And there was no rhyme or reason to that. It wasn't like it was a monologue about someone coming out. It wasn't a monologue about someone being different. It was about, if you know Alan Bennett's Talking Heads, this one, Her Big Chance, is about a woman who wants to be an actor and she gets her big chance in a film. She thinks it's a film. She doesn't realise she's so kind of unaware that she ends up being in a porn film where everyone's horrible to her, but she's thinking of it. It's like, finally, my chance to be in the movies. And it's harrowing and totally inappropriate for a like 12, 13-year-old to read, never mind to perform. So I did it and people like gave me feedback and were like, but after that, did you get that sort of sense of like people left you alone because they knew who you were because you stood up to them in your own way? And I was like, no, 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 things just carried on as, as they had before. And did you feel more confident in yourself? No, no, probably felt worse about myself. Just never even mentioned it again. It was never even mentioned. And I wanted to express that because I wanted to go, it's complicated, isn't it? And it doesn't always work out. It doesn't always get tied up with a bow. And I just, for me, I just carried on being a weirdo and people go, but why are you dressed like that? Why are you into that? What do you like? Oh, what? What's this music you like? Why do you like that? Oh, I don't really get what? What are you talking about? Like, that was just what carried on. And I think that's perhaps the case for a lot of people. And I go, well, I suppose I, I wanted to bring that out into the open and go, hey, maybe you've had an experience like this and that's okay too. Yes, very little is neatly resolved in life, you know. Sure. Everything just, the loose ends stay frayed and you get little moments of closure and resolution and you're grateful for those, but then... They often come undone and everything just sort of goes on messily. Yeah. Now we're roughly halfway through the podcast. I think it's going really great. The conversation's flowing like it would between a geezer and his mate. All right, mate. Hello, geezer. I'm pleased to see you. Ooh, there's so much chemistry. It's like a science lab of talking. I'm interested in what you said. Thank you. There's fun chat and there's deep chat. It's like Chris Evans is meeting Stephen Hawking. There are a few moments, sort of passing moments, you don't really dwell on, on it in the book, where you're quite candid about your insecurities. It's like a motif. In fact, you say that as a teen, you, you really loathed yourself. You use that phrase. Oh, yeah. And I suppose, you know, we're familiar with the concept of self-loathing and many of us suffer from it in some form. But the phrase you used, you know, you loathed yourself. It's sort of shocking when you put it like that. Is that something that you still struggle with from time to time? Is that something that you feel defines you or is it a war that you feel you've won? Oh, no, I think it's still very much in me. And I think it's sort of insidious to me, if that's the right grammar. Sure. Um, see, I can't even allow myself a sentence without criticising myself. Yeah. Screw the- you, grammar police. <laughs> I think I'm better understanding myself and better understanding the relationship I have with myself now. But um, yeah, I I think it still is there. And I think it is there for a lot of people. And I think, you know, the relationship we have with ourselves is complex. And the way we see ourselves and how we fit in with the world and how we kind of validate ourselves and and feel like, have I done enough with the day? Have I done enough with my life? Have I done enough with this year? Have I done enough with the lockdown? All that stuff, which I think a lot of people were have been exploring in the last year especially I think is in all of us yeah there were many things I related to in your book and I think a couple of times you made observations that were very similar to some of the things I made in my book recently I'm sure they've popped up in other people's books as well I'm not suggesting that you and I are the only people that have ever (laughs) thought of these things but one of the things you said was yeah it's like when you're nervous and you're about to go on stage or something or you're about to do a show and people say oh just relax and enjoy it <laughs> yeah yeah and you're like yeah. oh 
relax. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, Thanks yeah. so much. That's a great <laughs> top tip. Yeah, exactly. Just, oh, just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. Oh, yeah, okay, fine. Just be yourself. Just be yourself. <laughs> just be yourself. Yeah, all those sort of platitudes. You go, yeah. I find myself going, I can't even just I be am myself. I'm being myself. <laughs> I fucking hate myself. And I'm screwed up and I'm insecure and I'm really nervous. This is myself. Sorry. Exactly. exactly. But to be honest, it's only when I've kind of taken that strand and gone... Yeah, well, maybe I do hate myself sometimes and sometimes I do feel sad and sometimes I do listen to sad music and I like feeling that and that's sort of a comfort blanket for me or whatever. But when I do that, I go, oh, oh I feel a lot lighter. <laughs> and actually, I start to like myself again. It's like, oh, well, I can embrace all the elements of myself without going, yeah. oh, I feel nervous now. But you shouldn't feel nervous. You should feel confident. Well, maybe you're feeling nervous because you haven't done enough work to prepare for this. Oh, and all that sort of building up all these layers. And actually, when you take away all these layers and you go, oh, I'm just feeling a bit nervous today. Okay. Maybe what people mean deep down when they say like, oh, just enjoy it, just relax, is that on a practical level, they're sort of saying, well, we always have a choice as people to focus on the things we don't like about ourselves and to reinforce a narrative, to use kind of self-help speak, Yeah, that is unhelpful. And it is possible sometimes to concentrate on more positive things to stop yourself just completely getting overwhelmed by a sense of insecurity and self-loathing yes i think that is probably true isn't it i suppose as well it, that does demand a, a certain clarity i suppose which takes yeah time presence takes, of mind and that's yeah. tough when you're nervous because everything all that stuff abandons you yeah i think sort of breaking down all of those kind of the different lines coming at you mm-hmm. to dismantle that uh, takes a bit of effort that is what takes training isn't it of just to sort of separate out those thoughts and those kind of those words or those kind of sensations you have if you're feeling anxious about something or nervous about something. I guess that's mindfulness, right? Yeah, I think it probably is, isn't it? But I just don't like doing it on their terms. I don't like it when I have to sit there and listen to a tape telling me to breathe and think about my legs. (laughs) (laughs) Sound like a miserable git. No, you don't at all. I led you down that path anyway, because (laughs) I don't know, I'm just, I'm in a very... I'm in a very emotional place Uh just because I am finding the lockdown hard and I'm in the process of sorting through all my parents' bits and pieces. I've got boxes of all my mum's stuff now as well as when my dad died five years ago, I got all his stuff over here and then my mum died last year and now I've got all her stuff to go through. Mm. And I just thought, okay, January, lockdown, here we go. I'm going to do it. Otherwise, it's just going to be bugging me that it's all sat there in the shed. So I'm doing all that, but it is a bit of a mind... Uh, is there another expression apart from mind fuck that I can use? Uh, mind shag. Yeah, perfect. It's a bit of a mind shag. Have you read the um, Marie Kondo book? W- remind me of the title of that. I think it's called The Japanese Art of Tidying. But I'm oh, wrong. yeah. No, I haven't. I know the one you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. I mean, I read it and then I threw away loads of books and then I sort of regret it. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the thing. I'm in the phase now where I'm really finding it hard. I'm being tortured by the possibility that I will regret throwing some of this stuff away. But at the same time, it's like if I don't do it, then someone else is just going to go, well, none of this means anything to me. I'm just going to lob the lot. You know what I mean? If I don't rationalize and go through and preserve at least some of it and say, look, this is worth hanging on to. This means something. Then all of it will go at some point. It's not fair just to pass the responsibility on to my children just because I've got the space to store it all in these sheds we've got you know well I suppose as we live in a very uh, online age there's sort of less I often think like there's like photographs for example well photographs don't really get printed now so the idea of holding on to physical copies I know but what are you going to do because taking photographs is so easy Mm. that 
the average person is going to have thousands and thousands of unsorted digital photographs yes. that no one is ever going to have the time or the inclination to go through. Yeah. And it's sort of meaningless. We're just robotically snapping away, trying to preserve all these moments because we're so hardwired to judge the worth of an experience like a holiday by the memories we <laughs> take back, by the photographs we take especially. That's why everyone's got their cameras out. And, yeah. You know, we're just, as a culture, we're now in that mode. Like, it doesn't mean anything unless you took a photograph of it yeah. and you, you've held on to it, which I totally, I'm not poo-pooing that. I would never put poo-poo on that notion. Please don't. Because I totally relate. And I'm, I've always been big into photographing things and archiving things. But the upshot in the digital age is that you're just creating this huge unwieldy archive and expecting someone else to go through it one day and <laughs> and there won't be any photographs of grandma and grandpa because as you say no one really bothered printing them out they're buried on some hard drive on some laptop that's become obsolete yeah i guess there's that danger too isn't it yeah sorry i painted a very extreme picture no no you. but you're right no <laughs> I, mean, I sort of think in a, an increasingly disposable age like it's probably quite nice to hold on to a few things if you've got a bit of space but that's just yeah exactly as well um, and so in your book, you talk about the fact that part of the process of managing that self-loathing feeling that you would occasionally feel was falling back on your Victorian fantasy life. <laughs> yes. And so your version of Teenage Rebellion was visiting vintage clothing shops and <laughs> and all of this came together when you saw Remains of the Day in some ways, the, the James yes. Ivory film yes. based on the Kazuo Ishiguro novel. Yes. Talk to me about that because that was a big moment for me as well, in, maybe really? for different reasons. But what did you get from it? I think it was suddenly being presented with, oh, being a butler would be my ideal job because you live in somebody else's world, you sort of create the formality of their world. I've always liked formality, I guess, because it's sort of a structure that like feels understandable and feels kind of like, yes, and then this happens and this happens. And it, it feels controlled and manageable and understandable and not as complex as the wide, wild world. And this idea of a character, the, the butler in the film played by Anthony Hopkins, who dedicates his whole life to somebody else and doesn't have to worry about his own feelings and his own sort of thoughts and insecurities are immaterial because his concern is always the running of the house and the importance of the lord of the manor. Yeah. The importance of his work and facilitating that. Providing a service in the best way that he possibly can. Yes. Yeah. And I suppose that's simpler in a way, isn't it? Because you're not having to deal with all those difficulties and like, oh, but what if this and what if that? Yeah. You just go, no, dinner is at eight. That's right. All those things that people worry about, how to express themselves, how to be of value, how to live a meaningful life. You don't have to get hung up on any of that because you know what you're supposed to do. Your purpose is clearly defined. You can perform your job as well as you possibly can. There's pleasure in that yes. and a pride in that. Yeah. And you can, yeah, become completely subsumed within that role. Yeah. And that to me felt like delightful. And you have such meaning and there's such importance to your day because you've been exhausted from doing all of that. But at no point, in, this is in my fantasy idea of it, at no point have you had to go, oh, I quite fancy that person. I wonder if I could start a conversation with them. What if they'd like me? I wonder if, I, you know, I wonder, or maybe they won't like me and then I'll feel hurt by that. And how will I deal with that? You, know, you don't have to deal with any of that because you just go, your coffee, my lord. Yeah. And that sounds great in a way if you're frightened of that or frightened of other people and what they're going to perceive. It doesn't matter what they think of you if you just bring them their drink. Yeah, you just got to focus on butling. Yeah. Just got to butle a bit more. Adam, I feel like you understand me because <laughs> I, whenever I'd express this to people as a teenager, they'd be like, what? 
What are you talking about? There was always this sense of like, what? And whenever I had, like the summer holidays I'd always look forward to, when they came along, I'd have no idea how to fill a day because I think I had no idea of of kind of what I was allowed to do or what I was supposed to be doing. And I didn't often relate to the other kids in my year. So I was just like, I don't know. And I just spend just hours just sort of wandering around mum and dad's house and just sort of feeling low because I had nothing to do. And so I thought, well, the idea of having this formality would be great. But no one could understand that. And I think I'd then have to sort of explain myself and then I'd give up explaining myself and I'd go, excuse me, I'm going to go and listen to Michael Parkinson play some Frank Sinatra on Radio 2. Yeah. And that felt a lot happier. Um, One of my favorite parts of the book is where you talk about your relationship with the lady who ran the Saturday afternoon drama class that you attended. Yes, Yes, Miss Hammond. Miss Hammond, Patricia Hammond of the Patricia Hammond School of Dramatic Art. Yes. So you had been to her classes, you admired her, and then she got in touch with you as a teen after her husband died. Is that right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, we kept in contact. And then when her husband died, we... I guess became friends, really. Well, first of all, you wrote her a letter of condolence. Yes. Tell me about that, because that really <laughs> struck a chord. That reminded me of my dad a lot, the way your dad responded. Oh, really? Oh, how interesting. Well, I, you know, sort of 15, 16 years old at this point, received this news and thought, well, because I'd up until this point been obsessed with etiquette manuals <laughs> and reading about etiquette and reading again about formality. And often these were books that were written in the late 19th century. So they were full of the kind of Victorian customs of mourning debrettes and all that kind of thing exactly i've got it right here and so i took it upon myself to i would write a very formal letter of condolence expressing my deep sadness in kind of very florid terms which you know actually would i'm sure have been endearing but perhaps wouldn't have seemed that sincere but i would have thought they were very proper and very right you know deep sadness was exactly the time when formality comes into its own because it's a kind of framework to cling on to in times of turmoil and so I thought, this is perfect. And so I wrote this long letter and I showed it to my dad. And he went, oh, no, you don't need to write all that. What's all this? Oh, no, don't write that. Just write thoughts and prayers, Tom. That's all you got to write. Just write that. Thoughts and prayers, Tom and family, if you want. You know, that's it. And I was like, oh, that doesn't feel very... like <laughs> Was it the direct opposite of everything I sort of thought you had to do and felt I wanted to do? And you want to make a connection as well. You want to sort of express to that person... I get it. I feel so bad that you feel bad. Yes. And I want you to know that. And I suppose the formality of writing those letters or the sort of formal language that comes in is a way of kind of going, I get how serious this is and I get how important this is and I get how momentous this feeling is. And I maybe have not had that experience, but I can empathise or sympathise, literally sympathise yeah. with it. And I respect you. That's, I suppose, what it comes out. It comes out of deep, profound respect of going, I will use the biggest words I can find to right. show I have respect for your... Exactly. But your dad pointed out that actually that can tip over into self-indulgence, really. I don't know the the meaning of the expression. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a funny thing about people who suffer from self-loathing, I think, is that it is quite close on the spectrum to self-regard. You know what I mean? (laughs) And this is true of myself and a lot of people I know, is that people who are quite harshly self-critical sometimes are also pretty in love with themselves in some way yeah you know and there is something a little bit you're in danger of sometimes being a bit self-absorbed in those situations where actually yeah if you're writing a letter of condolence it should really be something you know formality is useful because it does stop you kind of tipping over into writing this kind of five page (laughs) essay about how deep you are and how much you understand the other person and you know often when you're grieving when a person is grieving it's very hard to know 
how they're going to take anything really. And yeah. sometimes the simplest things. When my parents died, when people sent me very short messages, sometimes it was just condolences. You know. All right. Yeah. That was great. I suddenly understood. Yeah. It was like, oh yeah, this is good. Thank you. They've thought about me. They know I'm sad. And this is actually condolences is a great word. Yeah, clearly that is right. Um, yeah, I mean, my dad as well, you know, he was born in 1941. My dad's sense of it was, yeah, if you write lots, you're basically doing this for yourself and how you seem because you want to use big words and you want to express how you feel. Well, this isn't a time for you to feel something. This is a time for her to mourn her husband. And, and I suppose I was like, oh, yeah, I suppose it's not part of the performance of my life. It's about somebody else. And so, yeah, difficult to know what to do there, isn't it? But yeah, I think simplicity is probably best and probably thoughts and prayers is fine. Well, whatever you wrote seemed to work because, as you say, you became friendly. She invited you to see a production of HMS Pinafore and Croydon. In a garden, yeah. And you got all dressed up. Of course. <laughs> like a deck chair attendant, yes. Yeah. And how old would you have been at that point? So I think I, I was about 15, 16 at this point. Right. right, quite young. And she's so nice to you. The whole anecdote made me quite emotional. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because I just thought, God, people can be very kind and nice. You know what I mean? Yeah, I have been very lucky that I've often had people in my life thus far who have been very sensitive and very in tune with kind of me being different and them sort of supporting that and supporting me and and you know great kindness and you know she did encourage me at a time when I felt like I don't know who I am and I don't know what I'm supposed to be and I, I'm doing my GCSEs and I guess it's going okay but what is all this life about and she was like it's great to be different and it's wonderful and because you still hadn't come out at that point right oh no way and the very much the mindset for me at that point was I'll never tell anybody and I'll be a butler and I'll live at the top of a grand house and I won't even see anybody else even though I was crushing on people dreadfully and really in love with people and in my year and stuff. And I didn't have any way of, um, yeah, there was no way I would be able to explore that because as well, again, it doesn't feel like it's that long ago, but because of things like Section 28, mm -hmm. which meant that teachers weren't, you know, in schools they weren't allowed to... You couldn't promote homosexuality. Yeah, which the idea of promoting it, I mean, geez, yeah. as if we can't promote ourselves. That's right. The idea was that if you sort of talked about it, if you normalised it, yes. and you just sort of implied that actually there was such a thing as, you know, being gay is normal in some way, then that's tantamount to promoting it. Exactly, yeah. And that's going to dissolve the fabric of society. Exactly. And, you know, like... There was that sort of homophobia that was used as a slur just to call someone gay. And it was really, in my mind, it was the worst thing that I could possibly do because it would... Well, I didn't know what it would result in. And the only thing you saw were the occasional late night films on Channel 4 where people either died or were beaten up and killed. There were no positive stories about like what happens when you come out. It's very different to, I think, what happens a bit more now. You know, we, people didn't talk about anybody being gay at all. And sometimes when I go on television and I talk about, you know, sexuality or something people go oh, why do you have to keep talking about being gay all the time and it's like yeah because for the first 20 years of my life i wasn't allowed to mention it it wasn't me i didn't make it a big deal like you know it wasn't me who sort of made it illegal to talk about in schools but yeah it's, it's kind of difficult to explain that i had no idea what it would entail you know would i be thrown out of home would i be disowned by the whole community i'd grown up in would i, I had no idea and you have to live that in your own head you can't talk to anybody about it because you're too scared to talk to anybody else about it so you carry this terrible terrible like weight inside and I guess that's where the self-loathing stuff really starts but to express that kind of sense of not being allowed to be as a human being is 
it's very pernicious. So yeah, there's absolutely no way I'd be able to come out. But despite that, there were these sort of silent messages that I guess people picked up on, kind people like Miss Hammond, who have, are continue to be very sensitive, intuitive people and generous people who had intoned that I was feeling like an outsider and, you know, she wanted to comfort me in that and say, you know, and I'm an outsider too and that's great, isn't it? I love the fact that she sort of indulged your Victorian fantasies by calling you Sir Tom (laughs) and you bumped into a friend of hers called Beryl after seeing HMS Pinafore (laughs) and she introduced you to Lady Beryl (laughs) and then she said, would you like to come for lunch with me and Lady Beryl? And so... (laughs) So you enthusiastically accept, but you say, in fact, rather than being a guest, why don't I be your butler? It was a perfect setup. <laughs> and so finally the fantasy could come to life and I could be the butler. But of course, Beryl was not into it. Yeah. She hadn't asked for this kind of remains of the day reenactment. <laughs> this kind of 15 year old role playing. <laughs> she hadn't asked for this immersive theatre piece. <laughs> yeah. So she was kind of well, to say the least, annoyed and irritated by it. Like she was just coming around for lunch with her friend to just have a bit of lunch in the garden, a glass of wine and a catch-up. And there was this kind of bizarre theatrical performance going on in the corner for no reason. And you're all dressed up, right? Of course. Of course. In a tailcoat, of course. <laughs> what did your parents say when you were dressing up? I'm spending the afternoon uh, pretending to be a butler. I'm going to dress <laughs> up. And what were they saying? Well, by this point, they were like, oh, all right. <laughs> I mean, they'd gone through so much of this weirdness for so long now that they were like, oh, yeah, all right. Do you want a lift? Yeah, okay, fine. And I was like, I didn't want a lift because I was like, butlers don't get lifts off their dad. But then I was like, I would actually quite like a lift. And so, yeah, they were like, all right, well, let us know when you want to be picked up. Don't overstay your welcome. And so left me to it, but just like, well, yeah, all right. And and just sort of went along with it. I mean, didn't tell, you know, couldn't tell anybody about it. We were like, yeah, I don't know what he's doing now. What's he like? I think they were terrified that I was just going to turn into this oddball eccentric without any means of like being able to support himself or earn a living or do anything with his life because he was you know frankly just too eccentric Mm -hmm. to put it mildly and so there was a concern there but they ultimately let me get on with it and then how did your butling stint go terribly because well I was in somebody else's kitchen trying to be a butler and the worst moment really was when I put down the serving dish which had some poached salmon and a, and a dish of hollandaise sauce down. Delightful. Delicious lunch. Um, but it was it had been heated because my parents had always heated plates. They still do. They're obsessed with hot plates. But I didn't, you know, in, in the remains of the day, he doesn't go, ow, oh, that's a bit hot. <laughs> so I carried it all the way to the table outside, but it was so hot by the time I got to the table, I sort of just dropped it onto the table, but it fell off. And so this salmon and this hollandaise sauce went all over Beryl's dress. Lady Beryl. Lady Beryl covered in hollandaise sauce. <laughs> Oh, a, a terrible sight to see like she'd been paintballing or something or, or worse. Um, <laughs> yes, you reference Monica Lewinsky in the book. Oh, yes, I do, don't I? Yes. Um, that was the tamer version of something else I wrote. But the, um, yeah, no, it was terrible. And then, of course, Beryl was not only irked by the fact that I was doing this pantomime around her. She was then, co- like her clothes were ruined and she was having a miserable time. And now she had food thrown over her by this idiotic teenager that was hanging around. And, and she... She was furious, but then had to cover it in that sort of suburban way that you're not allowed to show any feelings. And Mrs. Hammond, meanwhile, she's cool with all this, is she? She's just sort of like rolling with it. She, as somebody who's always enjoyed outsiders and enjoyed a bit of like cheeky naughtiness. And I think it it was a friend, as I remember, it was a friend that 
she liked to catch up with, but wasn't like, you know, she sort of could see that this friend was a bit uptight, but she felt that she had to catch up with every now and then. Yeah. And so I think she didn't mind that there was all this happening that was annoying to this friend. I think she quite enjoyed it. And then she left annoyed. And I think she kind of thought, well, more fool her for not playing along, you know. And that was very rare to see that sort of behaviour because in suburbia, everybody's quite uptight quite a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, I would love to think that I would be like Mrs. Hammond, but I probably would be... I don't know. I, I probably my tolerance would probably be too low. I would sort of go, no, I, I don't know. I'm not going to deal with this fifteen-year-old <laughs> dressed as a butler. But I think it's so. As I say, it's so heartening to know that people like her exist. Yeah. And then your anecdote about that concludes with you sat in the garden, staring up at the stars, and making chit chat with Mrs. Hammond. And uh, she says, "What's your favorite film?" And you answer. Independence Day. Of course. Because. Because <laughs> <laughs> you would think like with everything else that you're into, it would be something like Casablanca or I don't know. What. Uh, uh, yeah, Brief Encounter or something. Yeah. Um, I, again, wanted to represent that, particularly as a teenager, when you've got so much going on in your head that you just do weird things all the time. And you go, well, that's not expected. That came out of nowhere. But I quite like things about aliens at that point. I really like the X-Files. I love the idea that aliens existed. Mm. And so when independent, the film Independence came out, this film about this massive spaceship that comes down and hovers over New York and tries to abduct the president, I was like, this is exactly what I'm intrigued by. I mean, literally, I was just sort of fascinated with other, again, other worlds and other places and other ways of being, I suppose. And so that's why I said that. And I think she was kind of like, oh, that's an unusual choice. Yeah, that's a big scene in my mind, in the movie of your life. <laughs> you and Mrs. Ham. And, and then at the end of that scene, we pan up to the stars. Oh. Oh, it's great. Have you watched Independence Day recently? You know what? No, I haven't. I can only imagine it's still as brilliant as it seemed at the time. I would say that it's dog shit. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. <laughs> it's one of those films that came out at the time and everyone was like, yeah. oh, you've got to go and see Independence Day. <laughs> and it cleaned up at the box office. And, it's huge, yeah. Yeah, I remember. And I went to see it. And I even then I was aware, like, oh, the first half hour is pretty great. And the rest is not as good as the first half hour. And then I watched it a few years later on TV. I was like, this is more or less unwatchable. Oh, is it as bad as that? Yeah. I think so. Maybe <laughs> I've been too harsh on it. I can't remember how it even ends. I mean, I'm sure it's terrible. But again, special effects weren't such a thing then. Well, the ending of Independence Day is famously ludicrous yeah. because Jeff Goldblum goes up in a captured alien spaceship and manages to very easily interface with a totally alien computer. Whereas <laughs> to this day, everyone knows that you know, getting your phone to pair with a Bluetooth speaker is... It's complicated often enough. ...often a living nightmare. And <laughs> dealing with alien technology is unlikely to be that smooth. Yeah, that's something to bear in mind, isn't it? Maybe this is all a big preparation. Maybe this is our national service, really, is all that pairing with Wi-Fi printers. <laughs> that's our training for the forthcoming alien war that we're bound to face at some point. At some point, listen, the last few years have taught us that anything is possible. And it really wouldn't, don't you feel like it really wouldn't be that surprising? Mm. If the printers rise up. <laughs> well, if one day the printers stop printing out alien literature, that would be quite good, oh. wouldn't it, in a movie? So the aliens hack into all the printers on the earth and they yes. start printing out weird alien instructions and some mega nerds kind of assemble. Yes some machine that they've been given the instructions for. This is a bit like the plot to Explorers, a Joe Dante film, where this kid dreams 
he realizes that he's getting oh i think i've seen this he's getting the plans for a little spaceship beamed into his dreams by aliens and he constructs the ship it's really a great film the only alien film i've continued to enjoy as well is flash gordon oh yeah which i think is very much like star wars for gays (laughs) and huge generalization and i know people will be annoyed at me saying that i watched that recently on hd and you can see how crappy those sets are Oh, mate, yeah. I tried to watch that with my children the other day, didn't oh, I? I bet they were like, what the hell they're is like, this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah they're, they're just like, hang on, none of this computes at all, Dad. I don't know what you're on about. Because I loved that. Me and Joe used to adore that film. Oh, uh, I can imagine you guys would like it too. Yeah, I didn't know it at the time, but that was high camp. Yeah. I was like five years old and I was obsessed. Didn't like mildly enjoy it, but I was obsessed. Didn't care for Flash Gordon and Gale, like they're running around playing rugby with the guards. I was like, Ming is great like what a great life ming has or of course <laughs> clytus the man with the sort of skull mask yes robot mask it's an obscure planet in the sk system <laughs> the inhabitants <laughs> refer to it as <laughs> and max von Sydow is like yeah what does he say ah play with clytus him. i'm bored clytus i'm bored it's in a song isn't it yeah <laughs> oh yeah so great high collars. Uh, have you seen that one recently, though? Because there's a bit where Clytus drugs Dale. Oh. He has her drugged. Dale, isn't it? Not Gale, yeah. So that he can basically have his way with her. Do you remember that bit? Oh, th- what when she's taken into being a concubine, I think. Concubine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, I do. But she manages to, like, subvert. She just has the strength of... She comes round from it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think she's so strong-willed, she realises what's happening to her and she zaps herself out of it before the worst happens. Yes, that's it, isn't it? That is very troubling. It really is. Because I went to see it with my family when it came out. What is it? 80, 1980, maybe? I think it's 1980, yeah. And (laughs) I thought it was terrific. And my dad, though, afterwards, he said, that was a very sinister film indeed. (laughs) Oh, true. (laughs) I mean, there was a lot of odd stuff going on. I remember when Emperor Ming discovers that he's not with Dale and he just looks at this other concubine and goes, you! Yeah. And then walks off. There's one where the Emperor's daughter, who's in love with Flash. Flash. Princess Aura. Princess Aura. They're in a sort of, a bit like, you know, on super yachts when they have like a dinghy they go in, but that's bigger than the majority of boats anyway. They're in like a, a spaceship version of that. Yeah. Not that I know a lot about super yachts, by the way. I was going to say. Um, yeah, by the way, I've got, I live on a super yacht. No, um, <laughs> the ones I've seen in the magazines at my dentist. And they're coming to land somewhere. And she, I'm sure she has the line. Some, it's basically like, release the flaps. And it's such a ridiculous, like, camp line. Which, as a child, of course, I never picked up. And you go, this film is just teeming with ridiculous innuendo yeah the whole script is sort of littered with kind of either super dramatic language which is so dramatic it's tipped into that camp realm which something like independence day doesn't have that kind of ability to sort of i never know quite what that difference is but i suppose it's self-awareness that they're kind of the makers of flash gordon were like oh yeah this is obviously the campus thing that's ever existed like that's right i mean that kind of camp doesn't really exist anymore in mainstream culture uh, does hello? it hello <laughs> <laughs> is um, that it are you is that the role you play do you think nowadays to fill that gap because wow. i'm thinking of there used to be a certain amount of that that would pop up in mainstream culture that you know the yes. batman tv series in the 60s was sure. very much like that oh yeah and now all that is gone because of the marvel and the dc franchises 
everything is played straight, literally and yeah. metaphorically. Yeah. And it's all, oh, it's super serious. Now, this isn't camp, mate. This is the high stakes. This is dark. It's important. It's not just a cartoon, no. I mean, Susan Sontag has written the essay on camp, but I think that for me, camp really is taking the serious and treating it flippantly and taking the flippant and treating it seriously. So it's a sort of seesaw or a reversal of how serious we take things. So it is, it's always playing with that which is deemed most serious because that makes the world more bearable. I think that's what camp comes from. So I think making a story about an alien emperor who is bored and wants to play with the earth and doesn't understand them and it's, it's super grand is a way of kind of playing with the you know the the oppression in the world and the horrors of the world and going hey look how ridiculous it can be if we play with it and then it loses some of its at least some of its power and disappears into the realm of kind of playfulness and acting out which feels so much more palatable than the reality of the situation and makes it more manageable This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Ugh. Rosie, should we head back? Amble past. How are you, dog? I love you. Ah, oh, Rosie's doing a lot better these days. Podcats. All the patches of hair that got shaved off when she was ill a few weeks back are now more or less grown back. She's just generally a much bouncier person than she was this time last month. Which is great. Welcome back, podcasts. Uh, that was Tom Allen, of course, that I was speaking to there. A real pleasure to talk to Tom, and I'm very grateful indeed for his time. And uh, yeah, I look forward to bumping into him IRL at some future point. Hello, Techno Bird. Now, I'm pretty sure that I know the name of that bird now. But let's check it with Chirpomatic. Oh, very windy. Analyzing. Waiting for results. Skylark. Alauda. 
Arvensis. Nice job, Chirpomatic. Not sponsored by Chirpomatic, I would like to remind you, more cynical listeners. It's just the first phone app that I tried when I was looking for um, things to identify birdsong. And so far, it's worked quite well. Although I haven't really tried it on anything particularly challenging. Anyway, look, um, tape notes, a reminder to check out the Tape Notes podcast. It was such fun appearing on there and getting to just crap on at great length about my musical efforts. And uh, they did a really nice job of editing it all together and it sounds great. So check out my appearance on the Tape Notes podcast. As I said at the end of the last episode with Kazuo Ishiguro, I plan to do this auction at some point. I think it was going to be in a few weeks in April, but I think I'm going to give myself a bit more time and do it more like the beginning of May. I thought about doing it a few weeks back when I was still in the process of sorting through a lot of my stuff that I've accumulated over the years and throwing things out and sorting through my parents' stuff. And, you know, it's this whole last year has been a long sorting process, which I've mentioned a few times on the podcast, and I talked about it with Tom in this episode as well. But anyway, looking through some of my stuff, especially my old memorabilia, it didn't feel right to just throw it out. Uh, That would have been too much of a sentimental yank, a Tom Hank... But, on the other hand, what's the point of just keeping it in a dusty box until after I'm dead and someone comes across it and goes, what are these old manky toys? Let's put them in the bin. You know what I mean? So I thought, well, maybe these could go and live with some people who are interested in them. At the same time, they could be providing a bit of support for Médecins Sans Frontières. So for those of you not familiar with... Médecins Sans Frontières or MSF. Hey, it's no chiz, but it does the job. They are an organisation that provides medical assistance around the world to people in all kinds of crisis situations. Basically, if you see something grim happening on the news, or rather I should say when you see something grim happening on the news in a foreign country, for example, those Rohingya people whose refugee camp in Bangladesh burned down the other day. That was, I mean, talk about hardship piled on top of hardship. Then there's a good chance that behind the images showing the effects of a tragedy like that one or a war or natural disasters or COVID around the world, there will be volunteer doctors from MSF helping to provide emergency assistance to some of the people affected. Anyway, it seems to me that they're doing an extraordinary job and I thought I could show my support in some small way by auctioning off this uh, stuff. So I'm talking about very valuable items of profound pop cultural significance. I'll give you a few examples. I am going to be auctioning off my sailor's cap and T-shirt with my name on the front from the Adam and Joe show. 
a few of the stuffed toys that appeared in our movie parodies on that show. And what else? I've got some big blow-up reproductions, like full-color reproductions of book pages mounted on polyboard from the Adam and Joe book that we got made when we had a book launch at the ICA gallery in London and we put these big blow-ups of the book pages on the gallery walls as if it was art. (laughs) There will also be in this auction some souvenirs from the time I played local reporter Tim Messenger in the film Hot Fuzz. It is one of the greatest deaths in cinema history. Uh, My head is exploded when a church turret is toppled onto it. And if you heard me talking to Rose Matafeo recently on the podcast, then uh, I described to her the prosthetic they made of my head and they filled it with all blood and guts and blew it up that day out in Wells in May 2006. And after they had done the special effect and blown up my character's head, I went and retrieved some of the bits of the <laughs> of the head, including quite a good chunk of the face. It's really quite macabre. On the back, there's even the still kind of congealed gore and blood and hair and things like that. Fake blood, obviously. Anyway, I thought maybe one of you would like to own that slightly grotesque piece of movie history. And, as well as loads of other odds and sods, T-shirts, posters, etc., there is one of the bike helmets that Garth Jennings and I attached to the members of Radiohead when we did the video for their track Jigsaw Falling Into Place in 2007. I got Tom York and Johnny Greenwood to sign one of them, and that will be up for auction as well. I'm hoping that uh, these items and other bits and pieces will be available to bid for on my eBay page sometime in early May. And then towards the middle of May, I'm hoping to do a live-streamed event from my nutty room here in Norfolk in which I'll show a few clips and tell a few stories about some of the items in the auction before final bids are taken. That's the plan. I'll let you know how it goes. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks very much indeed once again to Tom Allen. Thanks to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his production support and to Matt Lamont for his conversation edit skills. Thanks, Seamus. Thanks, Matt. Thanks to Helen Green, who did the artwork for this podcast. Thanks to Acast for their ongoing support. And thanks very much indeed to you for continuing to listen, especially you, because you listened right to the end. You know, a lot of other people don't listen right to the end. I know, it seems unbelievable. We have such a great time at the end of the podcast, but they just, for whatever reason think they've got more important things to do but they are not getting sonic hugs unlike you (sighs) i love you